Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Nancy Prayer Donson, associate editorial board editor. Metro editor Greg Jefferson. We have a special guest today that we're really excited about, uh, Kieran Corbains, who's the president CEO of SA 2020. Prior to that, she was the first chief equity officer in the history of San Antonio. And SA 2020 has, they've refreshed their digital dashboards. I think people who uh, know about SA 2020 know that they're a really valuable source of information about what's going on in the city of San Antonio. They've refreshed their, their digital dashboards and they've also put out a city council district profile uh, which I think really illuminates the the city council elections that we're uh, that we're looking at now. And um, I, I'm, I've, over the last few days, I've just learned a lot of things. I, I did not know, for example, that District Eight had the highest percentage of people in the twenty to thirty four range. Like I think they were like thirty four percent of the people there. I didn't. I don't. I think just I. I'm no offense, to District Eight. I just didn't immediately think that man. That's like a, big, a lot of young people in that district, but. There are, and I learned that. So, Kieran, thank you so much for being with us, and I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you about I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, one of the things that we all kind of tend to lament in this city is voter turnout. And, um, but in looking at the data that SA 2020 has put together, um, and just kind of looking back over recent city council elections, it, what's really interesting is that uh, in 2013, I think we had 6.9% turnout in the city council election. In 2021, we were over 17%. Um, it's a really remarkable improvement over that time. It's not something that we necessarily uh, give ourselves a lot of credit for. What do you think, have, the, the numbers have been going up anyway prior to that, but there was definitely a big jump in 2021. What do you think contributed to that improved turnout? I love this question because voter turnout is so often spoken about via individuals with an individual frame. So what we're so often used to is a narrative that is about apathetic voters, right? And if only people could care more and if, oh gosh, if millennials just voted at better rates and really, you know, maybe that could really turn things around in mm -hmm. terms of inequities. And I appreciate this question so much because in reality, voter turnout has to do with systems. It's about digital equity, right? Do we have access to the information so that we're informed? It also has to do with transportation. Right? Can we even get to the polls? It has to do with the ways in which institutions and entire systems make voting a reality, a possibility, I should say. And so in 2019 is when Bear County switched to a super precinct model, which meant right that now we maybe kind of take it for granted. We can vote anywhere on election day. That's, that's a policy right, that made it more, that made voting more accessible to people. And so in 2020, in the presidential election, the next year, we had the greatest turnout in history for that election. And SA 2020 now tracks presidential turnout, midterm turnout, municipal turnout, as you mentioned. We're tracking all three, right, because we've seen, and all the research shows, that if voting goes up in one election, it's most likely to go up in the next election, right, even if it's a different type of election. Um, and the last municipal turnout um, in 2021 was a 50% increase from the municipal turnout before that. And anytime SA 2020 is talking about that and sharing these numbers, folks are like kind of taken by it, yeah. right? And yeah. even get kind of sort of like interested and curious and maybe a little bit more likely to 
talk to people around them about what it would take to get engaged and overcome some of those systemic mm -hmm. barriers to, to vote. And so we're really interested always across everything that we track across the entire community vision to elevate those kinds of stories to show that it's policies that can change people's behaviors and, and it's policies that are getting in the way um, and of, of being able to realize things like better voter turnout. As far as the increase in, in turnout, do you think is it all attributable to the 2019 change to kind of super precincts or is there, are there other factors that feed into it? Oh, for sure. I, I, I don't think we can ever uphold like a single policy, right? Mm -hmm. Because we also know no single institution in any sector can overcome entire inequities. Um, so of course, I think it has to do with um, who is president and folks in San Antonio and our patterns around voting. And what we had in 2021, we also had Proposition B, which was uh, dealing with the issue of collective bargaining for the police union. Now, you know, we've got uh, on the ballot the, the Justice Charter uh, uh, Amendment uh, and, uh, you know, which is some of the same people are, in, in, are involved in this, that were involved in that. Um, I, I have to think that that had some kind of a, you know, that that was a stimulated turnout in 2021. And I wonder if you think that we're likely to see the same thing. Oh, sure. I want to take a minute to acknowledge the work of Act for SA, right, mm -hmm. formerly the, a lot of the folks who are part of Fix SAPD um, that are now mobilizing and secured the 37,000 signatures, mm -hmm. right, that it took for um, to mobilization around the Justice Charter. Absolutely. And it's, I think there's also an, um, a conversation to be had here around when people are coming together, it's, it, it's exactly what sort of the foundation of the shared community vision that SA 2020 reports on and, and holds institutions accountable to is thousands and thousands of people have come together first in 2010 and now in 2020 to define what they want the future to look like. And when we do that, um, both just our brief history as an organization, the past you know 13 years now, shows that that's real. When people are organized around a shared vision, um, that leads to progress. And so absolutely, I think that things like voter turnout are, are affected and go hand in hand when folks are mobilized around issues. Just on a personal level, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that's been talked about over the years, and maybe not so much recently, uh, is the idea of uh, moving city elections to November. Uh, obviously, there's some, um, there would be some compli complications with that. Um, do you do you look at that and you think this is really, this would be a really beneficial for the thing for the city? Or do you think this is, we're going to get, city election will get lost in the, uh, with, with all these other races going on? Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not like a specialist in voter turnout. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't be able to necessarily speak on what tactics. I think if we rely on those on folks who are, um, there's definitely a lot of movement that says yes, right, that would increase voter turnout if it was done in that way. I think over and over again, for us at SA 2020, even personally, as someone, um, I consider myself an equity practitioner, when we're looking at strengthening a particular policy or process, mm -hmm. the way in which you do that to ensure equitable outcomes is to say, who are the folks who would be disproportionately impacted by this, mm -hmm. right? And then sourcing answers um, to how a, a process could be strengthened. So sure, yes, I think so. <laughs> One thing that was really interesting to me was looking at the percentage of insured and un uninsured mm. people in San Antonio and um, the data you have shows that um, in, I think 2010, 75% of San Antonians under the age of 65 were insured. 
Um, that went up to 82% in 2015 after the Affordable Care Act kicked in. And then it, it, it decreased a little bit to, I think, 79% in 2021. Any thoughts on why? It, not a, a huge drop, but any uh, thoughts on, on why that went down? I have to say, I'm so taken by the data that's in your brain. It's like been giving my whole heart. It's like filling all of my insides with joy. Even I would say, honestly, even more so than me, I do not keep the data in my brain. Um, I The story of health insurance... I will say mm-hmm. what, what I keep in my brain is that the gap in health insurance coverage in t- today in San Antonio is with our working age population, yeah. folks between the ages of 19 and 64. And so what's the power of SA2020's, of the community vision and SA2020 is that we're reporting on those indicators over time. And increasing health insurance coverage was a goal that was prioritized by the community in 2010, which means we've been tracking that data now for more than a decade. And so if you look at that historically trended data, you can see there's a spike in around 2014 to 15, just like you said, right? We can see a spike because of the Affordable Care Act. So again, we can point to, hey, where are the policies that have really made a difference historically for folks in San Antonio? So one, Affordable Care Act was a spike. And then now if we're talking about the level of multi-year millions of dollars being invested into workforce development approved by San Antonio voters, right? I'm, th- I'm talking, of course, about essay ready to work. And we know that in San Antonio, it's our working age population that does not largely does not have health insurance coverage. How is something like our workforce development program paying attention to health insurance when we talk about high quality jobs? Right, so the data gives us an opportunity to ask really more and more critical and, and inquiring questions, mm-hmm. as I would say you've done in that question. I don't think posed. it does, right? I don't, mm. It comes down to for the work initiative. I think it's just the dollar amount per hour that they get, right? That's the that's the threshold. You're so they're not talking <laughs> about the insurance benefits. That's that's really important. That's really interesting. Right. To really just you would even, assume that it would have benefits, but well, can it, even it's just asking for specificity when we say high quality jobs. Right. Right. Can we really yeah. unpack when we say high quality jobs? What does that need to be? What What do we need to mean by that when we're talking about folks in San right. Antonio? Yeah, that's a really important question. So much of the, of, of this, uh, w- w- what's revealing about uh, this data is about the disparities between districts. And we were talking about health insurance, and, and I'm going to refer to my notes here because this, this I don't didn't keep in my head. But um, District One and Five, and District One, you know, is is kind of anchored by the, the downtown. District Five on the west side, they have uh, by far the highest percentage of, of uninsured, twenty six percent in District One, twenty nine percent in District Five. I was also looking at the the broadband data you had in. Uh, District 9 on the north side, you had 94.5% have broadband. District 5 on the west side, 73%. This seems to be really getting at the kind of some of the issues that you've kind of devoted your mm. your career to, to, to addressing. I mean, if, if you that's a major difference in you, if you're talking about broadband access between the west side and what we're seeing on the north side. Right. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. I know you all had Councilman Terry Castillo on the show recently. Right. Um, and... When we talk about data that's disaggregated by geography, we are immediately not only talking about place, but we're talking about race, and we're talking about class in San Antonio. So all too often, right, oftentimes one of the forms of resistance I get when I want to talk about racial equity from folks is San Antonio is a quote-unquote majority-minority city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about race, it's about class. 
okay, pause, right? In order to talk about and even just to show our disaggregated data in a way that is maintains, I think, that systems-focused narrative that I was speaking about earlier in terms of voter turnout, we have to look at what historically has occurred in terms of policies that have gotten us here. And redlining, when you go to sa2020.org slash data and you explore those city council profiles, you can see that we've taken the historical maps of redlining and we've put them on top of the city council boundaries as of the ones that will go into effect after the election. And city council district five has the greatest um, number of neighborhoods that were redlined as most hazardous for investment. So if we start to see the data across every indicator disaggregate and those inequities and the, the worst outcomes for people in City Council District 5, we, we, we have to understand that within the context of that history. Can, can you give us a quick refresher on redlining? Oh, I mean, sure. it's one of those phrases we use oh, a lot, but yes, I mean, yes. we, we mm -hmm. don't often take the time to really say what it is. Oh, absolutely. So in the nineteen mid-1930s, in more than 200 cities across the country, the federal government in very, very close partnership with local governments, um, banks, and other types of financial institutions, um, looked at cities and drew maps that said these neighborhoods are most hazardous for investment. And in fact, on this page, if we go just a little bit down, we can see those redlining maps. And it said, these are the neighborhoods that are hazardous. These are the neighborhoods that are declining. These are the neighborhoods that are still desirable. And these are the neighborhoods that are best for investment. And then from there, um, it, it wasn't just that those neighborhoods were looked at in terms of their prospect to be able to return those loans. It wasn't just class. It was race conscious, right? It was very specifically saying the, there's a high density of black people that live in this neighborhood and therefore. Um, and then they were actively shut out of um, the investments and the mor mortgages that it would take to have home ownership, which we know home ownership, right, is a means of building generational wealth in the United States. And it was you know, oftentimes another sort of common form of resistance to advancing racial equity is that happened a long time ago. And, well, it actually lasted three decades, three decades mm -hmm. of actively discriminating against people of color. Um, and not only is it a commentary on the roots of poverty in our city, it also is commentary on um, the roots of wealth in our city. And so all too often, right, I appreciate that sort of like pause. Let's not make sure we're all on the same page about mm -hmm. red, what redlining means. And also, I really would love to see more dialogue around, hey, this is commentary on, on how generational wealth has been created historically in San Antonio. I, I, was, I was looking for the numbers because I don't, I don't uh, and I hope I'm right about this, but one of the things that, that, that struck me, because I was, as I was going through the data, I would, if I found something that, that was surprising to me, that would, you know, that was what I tended to focus on. And, and I think District 8 on the northwest side had the highest percentage of renters, if I remember right. Yes. Is that, is that right? That's right. And, and I, again, I, I'm not really sure yes. what, the, what the reason – I guess I, I want your, your thoughts on what that tells us mm. about any district or any community if, if oh, you have sure. a higher percentage of renters versus homeowners. Oh, I mean it's you've, the, the housing crisis, right? The, the, I, not even housing crisis. I, would, I should more specifically say people's ability to afford their homes, that crisis. 
And one, it's actually 48% of all of the possible housing units that are occupied in San Antonio, 48% are held by renters. So when we're starting to have conversations about things like property tax cuts at the state level, right, and we try to understand the effect that that's going to have on folks in San Antonio, it's not going to do anything for renters. And that is the vast, that is, that is nearly half, right, the folks that are in their homes. And one in two cannot afford their home. It's actually the number one expense followed by transportation for households. I grew up in District 8, actually, um, in a really tight-knit South Asian immigrant community. Um, I, I would imagine there that the number of renters in District 8 has a lot to do with the, the density of first-generation immigrants, as well as refugees in our city, right? So now we're having a conversation about housing affordability and, and how it inter intersects with immigration. SA 2020 has set a, a, a goal of really sharply reducing um, the number of people who are uh, burdened or facing uh, challenges when it comes to housing affordability. Um, and uh, I wonder how much you think the, the housing bond that was passed last year will uh, affect that. I mean, are you optimistic about that? You know, one of the most common questions we get is what are the bright spots? Because we're like all really sad about inequities and like experiencing them, right? And it's like very, very depressing in, in real life. And so folks oftentimes wanting to interact with this data are like, what are the bright spots? Like, what are the things that we can hold on to? And so we have some of these success stories, right, like voter turnout that we can sort of point to the incremental change that's been quite powerful. And to be clear, right, it's it's $150 million that has been approved as one of the many propositions in the in the board, in the bond, excuse me, that is specific to housing affordability. That's unprecedented. It's the first time Right, that that kind of money has been identified as a priority for affordable housing. So I'm incredibly hopeful and also really want to use and equip people, both folks in the community at large, um, who, again, maybe will be voting in the municipal election, for example, but also equip policymakers locally um, with this information. So again, those points of inquiry can be asked to make sure that now that investment has been earmarked, how are we making sure that that investment is actually done equitably? And I say that word with such um, caution because... Why is that? I, <laughs> I, yeah. I think equity is, you know, as really easily... It rolls off the tongue a little too easily. Um, and I, I think what gets lost is that from our experience at SA 2020, we have sort of this right really... We get to be in the room for a lot of things. We have a 50,000-foot view of San Antonio, given the data that we track, the folks that we're engaging with with San Antonio Shared Community Vision. What we see most frequently, folks in San Antonio, I would say including folks that are in our city government, from on the city manager side, city employees, as well as elected officials, overwhelmingly value equity. I truly believe that. Like Even on a personal note, I believe that folks in San Antonio really value it as a concept. What we're conflating in valuing equity is that that means we know how to put it into a policy and we know how to develop an entire policy that then is going to meet the folks in San, the needs of folks in San Antonio that actually accounts for their history and their needs. There's a major disconnect in being able to operationalize equity um, that we're witnessing. Um, and again, referencing a recent conversation that y'all had in this space, I'm thinking of the violent crime reduction plan. That's a 30-page document, and 
over and over and over again is talking about conditions. I actually counted. It's 19 in a 30-page document. Hmm. It's saying underlying conditions, social conditions, environmental conditions, um, societal conditions. Over and over again, it's talking about the root causes of violence. And at the same time, it is delivering a tactic Right, that does not make any sense. That folks are saying that folks, including our elected officials, like again the councilwoman Terry Castillo in District Five, saying, "Hey, there's a disconnect between this tactic and what we know addresses the root causes of violence, like poverty, um, and like many of the indicators that SA twenty twenty tracks." Right? No one, uh, to put it bluntly, You're looking at the symptoms versus mm-hmm. the versus the. To put it bluntly, right. I, Police headlights being shot at, being pointed in someone for 15 minutes is, doesn't end poverty, right? We know that. This document is saying over and over again that the root causes of this, of these conditions, right, are something else. So that then leads to a conversation of, hey, the San Antonio Police Department is one department in an entire city organization that actually has massive influence. It's not solely responsible, right? Really want to caution. I SA 2020, nor I personally believe that local government is solely responsible for achieving the community results embodied in that shared vision. But it is a massively influential influential institution that can make a difference in housing, health, workforce development. And so the disconnect that we're seeing in that plan, where it's articulating what the root causes are, but then giving us a tactic that doesn't show that it is really connecting to those root causes, is how is the police department coordinating with any of the other departments in our city organization that really does work on those root causes to to be strategizing and to be soliciting the feedback of community of those of folks who are saying are the violent offenders that are a handful of people that are responsible for the greatest number of violence and right. So are these folks who are being connected with things like workforce? development, right? If we know who, I mean, it's all the way down to saying apartment complexes, right? We know the apartment complexes. Okay, well, there's a breadth of these services that the city as one institution delivers to the public that addresses those root causes or or seeks to make a difference on those root causes of violence. So there's a, right, there's a disconnect um, between that particular tactic. And that's what I mean by Equity means we're paying where we are accounting for the differences in our histories and our needs across the entire community. Mm-hmm. And how are we actually shaping policy that accounts for that and doing it in coordination because we're acknowledging that no single policy can fix everything, right? It has to be in coordination. So I think the greatest critique on that on that plan is where is the coordination um, with folks who are addressing inequities that are otherwise being identified. Mm-hmm. You know, you were, uh, uh, I was telling you before we started the podcast, uh, one of the more memorable city council meetings uh, for me was, I think it was in, in 2017, when you did a presentation at the, at the time that the city kind of rolled out the equity uh, uh, budgeting, equity lens budgeting, and you did a presentation, Christine Drennan did a presentation and looking at some of the historical issues and talked a lot about redlining and so on. And uh, I wonder, like, what kind of, as you said, you know, no, no one really says I, I, I like inequity, um, right. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, when you start talking about what what policies are gonna you're gonna put in place, that's a different thing. Um, did you get much pushback on on the uh, equity lens budgeting approach? And 
now that we're, I guess, about five and a half years down the line, how much difference do you think it's made? Let me just sip some water. Sure, take your time. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Oh, my. This is a memorable presentation to me as well, probably for very different reasons. Tell I, us all about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Really more interesting. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah, let's hear about that. I, I will say what I'm – first, I feel very proud of that presentation because um, – I made that presentation, as you said, as, a, as the first chief equity officer that stood up what was then the Office of Equity, and speaking to a lot of the things that I speak to now, um, that this is, a, this is an expertise to bake equity into a policy and to ensure that the outcomes are achieved. And in that presentation, I named um, race specifically. And I, um, having come out of a process um, where I had spoke one-on-one -on -one, um, for the last year, I think at that point, with folks across San Antonio that had been working to advance equity long before I became the chief equity officer and had, through those conversations, defined what equity means, which I've used in this conversation, and more specifically said that racial equity is achieved when race is no longer predicting or determining our life outcomes as it is today in San Antonio. I... I was told to stop talking about race. By whom? By city leadership. So the city manager? I would say both yeah. sides. So that mm -hmm. presentation was reviewed by uh, both on the city manager side of leadership as well as elected officials. This is 2017. So this would have been Cheryl Scully mm -hmm. and Ivy Taylor. Or is that, no, who's that? I'll let y'all figure out. I'll let y'all figure out. I'll let y'all think through. Yeah, Nuremberg and Cheryl Scully. To this day, right, our city government, as of today, our city government has said race is a public health crisis. Racism, excuse me, racism is a public health crisis, right? Again, the, no question that we value ending racism. Where are we seeing race-conscious policies? It is so highly uncomfortable um, and I know it because I'm oftentimes the person in the room saying, hey, how is this thing race conscious? Hey, can we talk about how this is actually worst for? And do people just kind of cringe? When I don't, I, I think it comes back to the skills and expertise. Hey, it, there's nothing about us that's post-racial in the United States, right? And if we can look at San Antonio's community vision and we can look at the data, it, all the data in the world that we don't even need anymore, is showing us that racial inequities are real. And so advancing equity, anytime I hear the language of equity lens, um, I think I shared with you before we got started, right? I'm the, one of the first people to sort of shudder at the thought of that. And that's because of me saying sort of it, it's language that kind of rolls off the tongue too easily. I want people when they hear equity lens to say, what do you mean by that? So, hey, equity, equity, um, the equity lens was put on this budget policy and whatnot. I think actually some of the critique that we're seeing on that violent crime reduction plan is, hey, there's supposed to be an equity lens. How has that gone through that? What they're referring to is actually an equity impact assessment. And it's a set of guiding questions that equity practitioners use to ensure that folks who would be most impacted by a particular process or policy are brought into the creation of it. Um, and it's really what the foundation of that is, that if we do that, so there's different ways that this is said. Sometimes shorthand is like people that are closest to 
the pain of systemic inequities have the greatest knowledge and expertise to help inform how to end them. And all the research is showing us over and over and over again that when we design policies in that way, it's better for everyone. It, it actually uplifts the entire community. And there's no shortage of examples of that. But we, we can't get to doing things like an equity impact assessment in a meaningful way unless we're being really honest about the history that has gotten us here, the role of institutions, and I would say local government is one of the most influential institutions in affecting change across every other sector. Um, and then, right, actually working in a meaningful way, hand in hand with community leaders to help inform how policies are getting created and coordinating that work so that you don't have, you know, again, to continue the example, one, one aspect of our city department working in isolation from, from all other departments. So in 2017, they, the city started using a, an equity lens for its budgeting, right? And at the same time, you got the directive to, hey, let's not talk about race. Let's not include this in this policy. When we're talking about the equity, equity lens, which I always felt was kind of this amorphous thing that nobody outside of the city hall really understood. So what impact did that have on actual city budgets going forward, annual budgets? There's a couple of things I want to respond to within that, right? So first, mm -hmm. I, I, I absolutely spoke about race in that presentation. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm sort of sharing a window into how difficult that it was to get there. Right. Okay. Right. Race was absolutely mentioned um, and said out loud, and it was a, a part of the strategy that was being um, put into practice at that time in the Office of Equity. And... Second two, I, I don't think this is what you mean by it, but I want to clarify anyway because I think this is sometimes slippery language that's used that people outside of the city don't know necessarily what equity lens is. I think you mean it in the sense of like, mm, this is a critique, right? In, me, in sharing me saying, hey, let's actually challenge that language and say and, and yeah, hold yeah. accountability, right, in terms of what that means. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with, y'all, my neighborhood, Takari, has a sign on their cash register right now that says prices are going to go up because of the economy. <laughs> right? I'm like, pe people understand inequities, right? Because right. even if they're not using the language of an mm. equity practitioner or systems or disaggregated data, right? That language yeah, is very yeah, special. Yeah, yeah. I, again, right, I know that's right, not what you're yeah. saying, but I really want to clarify because right. it's it is it is a slippery thing. Mm. The One of the earliest ones, you know, there's even if I, let's actually talk about even more recently. Mm -hmm. um, I've been with SA 2020 now since 2018. Mm -hmm. When people, this is an example that comes to mind again when folks talk about like, hey, what are the bright spots? ARPA funding by the federal government was required. Local Cities had to report in from the jump. How is this going to be equitable? And then throughout the process had to articulate. Um, the city of San Antonio was able to say, those ARPA reporting documents are public, right? You can go, including from our city of San Antonio, they make that information public. Um, our ARPA documents talk about how the, as of fiscal year 2018, we've had a budget equity tool um, to help ensure that outcomes are more equitable, right? The federal government required essentially the city of San Antonio to talk about, hey, what was the history of equity? Right. So, I mean, those of, of us who have been doing this work for a minute in San Antonio know how hard it has been to to make some of these accomplishments um, real. One of the things that's come out of that ARPA funding that we've just right heard about earlier this year is the um, increase in 
how long senior centers, the comprehensive senior centers that the Department of Human Services, how long those senior centers are open. Our data shows, um, of course, City Council District 5 knows that the population in, city in District 5 has the highest number of folks who are seniors, folks that are over 65. So a, a senior center saying that they're going to open extended hours and that coming through ARPA funding, District 5 has two of those senior centers, which is more than the one that most other districts have, right? That's a, that starts now we're starting to get to, okay, hey, the effect of senior centers in District 5, again, when we start to lay on the history and the other outcomes in District 5, this has that's going to have a profound um, difference in terms of results for a community. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, well, before we wrap things up, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, the future of SA 2020, it started, as, as we all know, uh, it's kind of a product of uh, then Mayor Julian Castro's uh, idea of like, let's, let's, have, let's have a visioning process and sort of like sort of project what, what kind of future we want and look at, let's establish some priorities, things that we wanted to work on as a city. Um, in 2023, as you, as you look at the future of SA 2020, and I know you. One of the things, one of the things you, you get this a, a lot, and so I'm not going to ask it, but it, people always say, you know, it's SA 2020. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's I, a little age. It's kind of the Just thing. It, it was the thing that I, as a, when I was younger, I used to wonder, like, musical youth. Are they going to be when they get older? Are they going to is Sonic Youth going to say Sonic Youth forever? I don't know. What do you do? You know. Right. But uh, anyway, so but I I won't burden you with that one. But what when you look at at um, SA twenty twenty going forward. I mean, what what do you do you, you see as its role long term? Oh gosh, in San Antonio. Yeah, holding public institutions accountable mm -hmm. to the community's priorities, which will continue to be defined by more and more folks who call San Antonio home. And I I believe that, and it's already I've felt it even just the last three years. The further we get away, or the no, I should say, the longer we are in existence. Um, the more that the, the power of a community vision and the power of an independent nonprofit that's holding institutions accountable will be undeniable. Does what's happening at the state level have an effect on San Antonio? Oh, big time. With diversity and inclusion. Can oh, you talk absolutely. about, can you just kind of lay that out for us and our, for <laughs> listeners and, um, you know, what's happening, if you can lay it out and then what it means to San Antonio? Our, I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about the attack on diversity, equity, inclusion that we're seeing yes. most specifically right now in universities. Yeah. I believe that this is a, um, a, a gross abuse of power, and also it is pushing a narrative that efforts to center equity in things like admission processes in universities, um, things like hiring processes, for example, um, that are actually, again, accounting for the different histories and needs and making processes more transparent and more accountable to people. The narrative that is very harmful and very untrue, just factually incorrect, um, is that this is sort of giving a free pass to people of color, right? Um, it's not based on merit. It's just based on, right, the color of people's skin. When we know in reality, um, it's actually removing barriers and processes um, and keeping us away from things like top talent, right? Um, 
so the question, even I, I feel I'm like realizing as I talk to you that I'm so passionate about the fact of, that it's a harmful narrative. Oh, this yeah. is where I was going with that. How can it seep into, <laughs> or or would it seep into San Antonio? I mean, you're saying um, it's pretty strong, like their belief in San Antonio has a pretty strong belief oh, right. in these Yeah, it's because how scary, right? How frightening, just in the way that power works. Um, I actually, I uh, nothing about, you know, it's, SC 2020 is not funded by sort of state government in any way, right? And I'm, I'm reading this and I feel terrified as an equity practitioner, as someone who does this work on a local level. And over and, but what we also know, right, the power of being folks who are doing this work at a local level. And even just going back to the example of um, property tax cuts, right? Uh, even thinking about health insurance coverage. So uh, San Antonio doesn't work in isolation. And it's also, I think, that really does go back to your question about the future of SC 2020. It's a community vision for San Antonio, and we are affected by federal and state policy. So at SC 2020, we are just so eager to get better and better and better at equipping people with information they need to hold elected officials accountable, and then also getting better at making information available that elected officials and city employees and our city manager, former government, can use mm -hmm. to strengthen policy. Well, for example, I mean, on the issue of health uh, health insurance coverage, I mean, Medicaid expansion exactly. has been a, a huge issue for That's the past right. decade. That's right. Santa, uh, Texas has, has been stubbornly held out on that. Are you, in, uh, as an organization, in communication with uh, state lawmakers and talking about this issue and, and the impact that it can have? We, we don't do work with state lawmakers, but we are – we partner – one of our board members, Marisa Bono, who leads Every Texan. Um, so we monitor and, and have partnered in various ways with their organization to simply just better understand how we can do the work that we do in San Antonio in light of what we know is coming down from the state level. Mm -hmm. Kieran Corbains, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you all. And for everyone listening in, hope you're doing well. We'll be back with you next week. Take care.